0: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
1: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which, of course, means Armchair Politics is coming up in about an hour for two hours of commentary and analysis uh, about um, headlines from the worlds of politics and current events, uh, commentary and analysis from uh, joining us um For this week's edition of Armchair Politics, we have former high-ranking government official in two presidential administrations, Mark Everson. He'll be joining our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki, on the left, and uh, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter, on the right. Uh, That's coming up in just a little bit, as is the case every Wednesday, but we're going to start out the show today with... um, Life Lessons from the World's Greatest Negotiator, uh, courtesy of a book which uh, I think was officially released yesterday called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen. And the author of the book and the person, uh, uh, my guest rather, this hour is um, a New York Times best-selling author and acclaimed magazine writer who also happens to be Herbie Cohen's son, Rich Cohen, and Rich joins me by phone. Good morning, Rich. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: You know, Rich, a lot of people try to get as far away from their parents as they possibly (laughs) can in choice of career and in the things that they do and talk about. How did you end up wanting to write a book about your dad?
2: Well, let me first say that I myself am a terrible negotiator. So, (laughs) in that way, I did get away from him. But my father was I was, you know, the youngest of three kids and I sort of watched my father in action and it was he was involved with the government, with the FBI, with terrorist negotiation. But for me, he was just a guy interacting with the world and it was always very fun to watch him because he approached uh life like it was a game. That's his, his secret to life, which is his care but not that much. Approach it like a game. <laughs> Don't become too emotionally involved. Sit back and enjoy yourself and and his main way of t- telling this, in addition to doing things, was being very funny and telling very funny stories. So for me, he's always been great material at telling stories about my father. They become like tall tales for my friends. Was was he,
1: um, I, I mean, he was described by Playboy Magazine as the world's greatest negotiator, was he? Yeah. Was he bigger than life, Rich?
2: Yes. First of all, he looked a lot like Walter Matthau in the movie uh, The Bad News Bears. <laughs> which my friends got a huge kick out of. It once he even told the story where he was on an airplane and he heard people arguing across the aisle about whether or not that was Walter Matthau. Oh, that's and funny. And they were arguing, why would he be sitting in coach? He's a big movie star. And to test it, they started yelling Walter very loudly to see if he responded. So
1: <laughs> that's funny. He was
2: the kind of. I would come home from school and my I'd have five friends at my house sitting with him, and he'd be telling stories and goofing around with them. So. He was always sort of out in the driveway smoking a cigar, playing basketball. But then he would go off, and when I was a kid, he went down to our basement, and he wrote this book long-handed with calligraphy pen and yellow legal pads in our basement for six months. He disappeared, and it got rejected by, like, 18 publishers, and finally a crazy guy published it, and it sold over 2 million copies, and it still sells thousands it- and thousands of books every year. That's You can negotiate anything. That's his book.
1: Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that. I have to tell you this uh, very quick um, Walter Mathau look-alike thing. Um, <laughs> my, my driver's training instructor looked like Walter Mathau. <laughs> and so much so that he rode a bike to work. <laughs> and that used to just tickle me. He looked like Walter Mathau and he didn't even drive a car.
2: But he was—he yeah. <laughs> was my
1: driver's training instructor.
2: <laughs> anyway, well, when you, when somebody looks like Walter Matthau starts talking, you tend to take the coaching from him. <laughs>
1: yeah, you do, you do.
2: Um, but the uh, the
1: book "Adventures of Herbie Cohen." How much of this is biography, and how much of it is is uh, Rich's uh, Herbie Cohen tall tales uh, collected?
2: It's a mix. You know, I think of it like there's a lot in this book. You get his entire philosophy, which I just summarized as caring, but not that much in specific tricks he would have for negotiating and dealing with people. And he's a big believer in win-win negotiation, that for you to win, you have to let the other side feel like they won for deals for to stick and things to last and things to work. And I always think, you know, it's the way he t- taught stories. It's sort of the medicine pill covered in chocolate. It's, a, it's stories, and they're funny stories and anecdotes, and also the story of his life and the story of my life and his life as father and son, which is why it sort of came out near Father's Day. So I like to think it's a weave of both, you know, laugh and substance.
1: How did he end up being this, this world's greatest negotiator? Was it uh, something about... His career choice, uh, the profession he was in, how did he end up being basically the go-to guy for presidents and corporate execs and, and world leaders when they were uh, up against it when it came to negotiating?
2: That's what I always loved about his story and found so fascinating was that he's completely, This, this you can't go to school for this. He grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And he just got into and out of all kinds of trouble in school with his parents and his neighborhood and friends. He would tell you that his first real experience negotiating was a crazy kid in his neighborhood took a dog hostage and said he was going to kill the dog unless the owner of that dog, who was a girl in his high school, went to a dance with him. Now, <laughs> nowadays, this would probably result in a SWAT team being called in. But then my father was happening by, he saw this, and he solved this problem to get in there and solve it and that was the beginning and there's another story later on where the, he was going to get kicked out of school and he sort of put himself in the position of the principal and said it's not it's in our interest not to be kicked out of school but it's in your interest not to kick us out of school and he explained why and then ultimately he went into the military came out and he got a job working at Allstate insurance as a claims adjuster while he was going to law school at night And he was just so good at sort of settling claims and dealing with people and figuring out how things work that he kept getting promoted until he was in a role of kind of running the East in training people how to do this. And eventually they hired him. Sears owned Allstate. Sears brought him back and put him in the executive suite of Sears and started having negotiate deals for Sears. This is when Sears was like Amazon. And um, training Sears executives how to negotiate – and then Sears started lending him out to other companies. And then he went out on his own, and he would hold these seminars all over the country and all over the world, teaching people to negotiate, all stuff he learned as a kid, and then ultimately got hired to teach FBI agents how to do it. And he was writing all this down and coming up with theories. And then the FBI started using him to negotiate, and then just went from there to where he ended up working, you know, Jimmy Carter brought him in during the Iran hostage crisis, he worked for Reagan... Uh, who put him on the strategic arms reduction talks where he worked against the Russians, and he has a whole chapter in his book called The Soviet Style, which I'm thinking about now all the time because you see it in Putin, which is how the Soviets negotiated, which is zero-sum, which is you have to lose for us to feel like we won, and how do you deal with that? So it's just a very natural from the street up into the government, but it's all stuff he learned out in the world.
1: Is it true that he coined the phrase win-win?
2: Yes. Well, he didn't, he, what he did was he was working, he worked at the University of Michigan in the 60s, and he was working on game theory, which was a new thing. And I believe that was a phrase in game theory that was like an academic phrase. It, wasn't just, it was like win-lose, lose-lose, lose-win, win-lose, win-win. And he took it and sort of brought it out into the business world and said this should be our goal, win-win. Not because we're good people, but because we want to be successful. And for our deals to stick, Thing like if if you don't if the other side doesn't feel like they're coming out of it with something they're going to look for a reason for it to fail. If you want this thing to work, you got to make the other side be committed to it working too. And one of the simple life things he taught me that I use all the time is if you have an opponent and you're trying to solve a problem, ask for their help. Don't tell them that you know how to do it or you know better. He always said dumb is better than smart in a negotiation, and inarticulate is better than articulate. Say I don't know help me show me how to do it and if that person becomes part of the solution then they'll have a vested interest in making it a success
1: and it's um and it's important from your dad's perspective to make the person you're negotiating with feel
2: respected and in fact be respected right and you have to see part of it being detached and not losing uh, your sense of, of it being a game and where you are, is don't become emotionally involved. He would say that the worst person you can negotiate for is yourself because you're emotionally involved. And the worst thing, you probably only worse than that, is trying to negotiate for with your kids. You lose all sense of perspective. But I saw today in the paper that Macron, the head of France, said that we don't humiliate Vladimir Putin. Okay? Because emotionally... What's going on in Russia seems so bad that you want to humiliate this guy if you can. But if you humiliate him, you've got you to look at what the goal is. Don't lose sight of that in this case, which is to end this war. And to do that, you have to give him a way out. You can't completely box him in. And that's just basic stuff, but people sometimes feel it instinctively, but they haven't really put it into words, which is you've got to let somebody be able to walk away. Don't walk away. They're going to have to leave in another way that's not in your interest either.
1: Well, it, it, um, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. It, goes, it it starts being a matter of, um, I don't just want to win. I want to beat that guy.
2: Right. And that's when you lose. That's what he would tell you. Because you've just lost. You've you just become emotionally involved. You're not looking at it like a game. And now you care too much. You have to be willing to walk away to not care and to move on. And when my father's made mistakes in his own life, it's when he hasn't followed his own lessons because he's become overly emotionally involved. <laughs> isn't I've that, seen it.
1: Isn't that true yeah. for all of us, Rich? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're pretty good at giving advice to other people, but if we don't follow it ourselves, we can get into some real scrapes.
2: Um, that's all in the book. I've I've lived through all of it, the ups and the downs. Big Frank Sinatra fans so it was like a Frank Sinatra, living in a Frank Sinatra song in my house. <laughs> oh, that's. I'd say music. what kind of music we can listen to the car. He'd say, "Well, we got both kinds. We got '70s Sinatra and '50s Sinatra.
1: You can choose." <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, actually, I. That's a car I wouldn't mind riding in. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, the Adventures of Herbie Cohen, the World's Greatest Negotiator, is uh, was just released. What yesterday?
2: Yeah, twenty four hours ago. Brand new. Brand new to the world.
1: And uh, now, how long have you been working on this book? I'm I'm tempted to ask if it was a uh, pandemic project.
2: Well, <laughs> my know? father's always been. I think everything's kind of a pandemic project that everybody's doing right now, and everybody's gone a little bit insane, you know out of the pandemic and I, I do feel like to some extent it was a pandemic project, but I've also been working on it my whole life. I mean, my first book that I wrote that I was published in nineteen ninety nine opens with a scene of my father and his friends eating breakfast at Nate and Al's in Beverly Hills, talking about gangsters from the nineteen thirties in Brooklyn. So <laughs> and my last book was about peewee hockey. Pee Wee's hockey where with my son, where I completely lost my sense of perspective and lost my mind. And um it starts with him giving me that advice, which is, it's, you know, you care too much here. It's like you're out there playing. You've got to forget about it. So it, even though it's sort of this is actually like focusing on the main character, I've been writing about my father and seeing the world sort of through his eyes since I could walk, I think. Um. Now, I should say I didn't learn to walk till I was 25 years old. <laughs>
1: Well, I want to ask you about the Warriors, but I have a break coming up here, Rich. Um, okay. Can, uh, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Sure. Great. My sure. guest is um, Rich Cohen. His, uh, his dad was uh, Herbie Cohen, the world's greatest negotiator, and Rich has a new book. About his dad, called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator, just came out yesterday. We're going to talk some more with Rich, but first, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV 92.1 LP FM in Flint, a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Hearing. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There's more with uh, Rich Cohen um, and the Tom Sumner program coming up straight ahead. Hello, out there everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-Double-G-U-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> Hey, welcome back everybody. We continue uh, our conversation about the uh, world's greatest negotiators, Herbie Cohen. He was the uh, author of the how-to classic, You Can Negotiate Anything. He was the go-to guy for Jimmy Carter, Major League Baseball, Fortune 500 companies, the list goes on and on. as laid out in a... uh, a book that just came out yesterday called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen by his son, Rich Cohen, who joins me by phone. Rich, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that.
2: Oh, yeah, no problem. Happy um, to.
1: Rich, in this book, um, in some of the things that I've read about the book, it it, it says it, it really um, sort of helps... Um, with life lessons. How, how do you think of it as um, life lessons and not just uh, you know the, the, the business of negotiation?
2: Well, his book is a business book but it's, it's, it's like my father. It's, none of it's really a business book. He'd always say if something's really important if it touches you, if it matters it's about life. It's always about life. And that was one of the things he would say about Frank Sinatra, which I remember there was a song Frank Sinatra sang called There Used to Be a Ballpark, which I think is about Ebbets Field. And he would say, it's not about a ballpark, you idiot. It's about life, you know. (laughs) So his way of saying approaching a, a negotiation is to care, but not that much. But he'd say that goes for pretty much most of your life. He'd always said to me, you know, when you're getting to accumulating things and working and losing sense of perspective, um, he'd always say that in this world, everybody rents, nobody owns anything, you know. it's all In the end, it's all going back where it came from. So basically that was his view about how to regard business, view about how to regard life, and his idea is if you approach it like a game, like it's all in the course of eternity, not of ultimate importance, a lot of the things you get involved in, then you'll actually be more successful, not less successful, because you'll play loose, you'll take chances, you'll make risks, you'll have fun, and ultimately you'll realize that you can walk away from all this and still be yourself. And when you do that, you can you can reach a kind of a deal. So I always read there was always a second level into everything he said that was sometimes humorous and sometimes... Very serious, but it was about everything. And one of the things I loved as a kid about his book is he began each chapter with a quote, and uh, not by him necessarily, uh, but by different people. And I've lived by those quotes. One of them is, The meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. I find myself <laughs> thinking of that all the time. You know, oh, that's funny. Uh, another is, We see things not as they are, we see things as we are. I think of that all the time. And one of his big missions was always to make people who felt like they were weak and had no power realize that you have power, even if you don't realize it. Just realizing is what gives you the power. And the thing that he would always say is, power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. So ultimately, I think that it was that that what he taught me, and what's in his book, and what's in this book through him, is the message that, Everybody has power and everybody can control their own destiny if they can step back and look at the big picture.
1: Did he come by his ability naturally or were there skills that he developed over his lifetime?
2: Well, he would say the best teacher is failure. So yeah. He learned what to do by failing and doing the wrong thing. Now, some of it's his personality just because he very much likes people, likes situations, and likes to be in the mix. You know, it's just fun for him. If there's a problem, he likes to help solve it. If there's an injustice that he feels, he likes to help, you know, fight it. So, but he, you know, many times made mistakes, and it was through making mistakes that he learned what he does. He's alive. He's 89 years old, and so now he's, learned a lot but you would say you'd be the first to say that he's made his share of mistakes and not letting no, not let those mistakes get him down not be disabled by defeat you know not wallow in it but learn from it and move on and often when I was a kid he would teach that failing or coming up short often turns out to be the best thing that happened to you because it's out of that that you figure out how to live and what you're made of
1: and and I, I guess I'm just, I'm I'm trying to get at, did he have a gift for this, or are these life yeah, lessons? Yeah, he,
2: he has a gift. He has a gift for it. Um, and but, his gift for it is his sense of humor and his sense of perspective. I, I mean, I think these are things that he felt anybody could learn to do. That's what I was going to get at, Rich, yeah.
1: is is can these things um, be taught, and, and is that what you're hoping that people will get out of? this book the way maybe some people did from your dad's book.
2: Yes, and he believes that you, know, there's, you enter these situations where you're faced against some kind of big entity, like the government or the establishment, or, and there's this power differential, but that's an illusion. You overcome that. And I, I give this example. This is a stupid thing, but he said every kind of thing wants to present authority over you. And it's like do you believe that that authority is real? so one of his examples or something that happened to me yesterday that was funny, the book was published yesterday, and I'm like, this is something my father loved, which is at this diner and there was a sign on the wall on the bathroom that said, "No water out of service." but they were using water all over the restaurant those sinks were on uh, and sometimes waiters would go into the bathroom it was just, they didn't want people using the bathroom and it was like... Ten people that went to the bathroom, nine saw the sign and left looking for a bathroom. But one out of ten would just go in and use the bathroom, ignore the sign. Okay, so that to him was about authority, about what, what authority does that sign have over you. And he used to tell the story about an episode of Candid Camera where Alan Funt, who was the host all before my time, but I love the story, put a sign on the highway outside of Maryland that said, Maryland closed today. People would pull up and say, "Oh, it's closed. Oh, it's terrible. I have family in there. When's it going to (laughs) open?" Around and just drive away. Oh, that's funny. That question the sign. Don't believe it just because it's been written in letters. Like everything that's one of his things that he did that blew people's mind at the time is he talked about how you can negotiate for a refrigerator at Sears. Like, the, those are things you didn't negotiate in a store like Sears, but his thing was, you know, the sign on top of the refrigerator has the number, the price written in these big block letters. It looks like it was put there by the printer in the sky. So you, say. you can't question that price. Look at those letters. Look at how big they are. But ultimately, you'd say anything that is a product of a negotiation is negotiable. Once you realize that this price was just arbitrarily set by some people smoking cigarettes sitting in the back room, you realize you can change that price. And that's the kind of thing I meant. He meant that for life, which is you can question authority and you can make your life better by being an active participant in the game that you're already involved in, even if you don't realize it.
1: What does your dad think of this book?
2: I would say he loves about 95% of it. And that's <laughs> that's still an A, I think. In my English class, it was anyway.
1: Is um I, So he's read the
2: book? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he, reads, he basically reads everything I write, so he's very been involved in that, too. Um, so and he always has his own... He had a tendency, when I was a kid, I'd write stories about, like, people being beat up, and uh, he would always take a look at the draft and return it, and my pathetic character had been turned into a wise guy from Brooklyn who takes fate into his own hands.
1: <laughs> the... Um, it, in the process of writing this book, did did you consult with your dad? To, to um, I mean, was was he like a, a resource for for researching some of the stories and and yes. some of the? Yes, well, elements? a lot of
2: these stories are stuff that I lived through or heard over and over again. So, what I would do is I would call him and um, detail or ask about specifics. Or just ask things, and he. I, while working on the book, I learned some stories I'd never learned before, because about his childhood, life in business. Because of course, when I'd ask him about some stories, it would jog his memory, and he would think of other stories that I hadn't heard. So, and not only from him, he had this very tight group of friends growing up, and I through the my lawyers. life I spent a lot of time with them. Lawyers, well, well, some of them. One of them was Larry, this kid, Larry Zeiger, that became Larry King. Who a great had a great radio show before his CNN shows like my father's closest friend, and Larry at night used to tell these stories on the radio. And some of them, some of the stories in this book, if you go onto Google, you can hear Larry tell them in his, you know, Mark Twain like thirty minute long stem-winder kind of way for these stories about my father as a kid. So that was part of sealing my father in my mind as this kind of mythical figure. Was the fact that at late at night when I lie in bed, this guy. Off in Washington D.C. was telling stories about him as a 15-year-old. And and um, this, and I'll tell you too. You can people can look up, look up the look up the Mappo story, which was then written about in the New Yorker magazine. Like it was this incredible American story. So, and then the other one was the Carvel story, which is about my father Larry and Sandy Koufax got in a fight about whether or not there was a Carvel ice cream in New Haven that was selling three scoops for a dime. And to settle the bet, they drove to New Haven in the middle of the night, getting in big trouble with their parents, obviously.
1: And, and these guys that he ran around with, he referred to them as the Warriors?
2: Well, the, the thing in Brooklyn then, Brooklyn and the Bronx and stuff, and they, they had these little street gangs, these youth gangs. They, were, they called them social athletic clubs. And they were mostly about hanging out and playing sports because they had all these sports leagues. So a lot of basketball and fast-pitch softball and roller hockey. And his group was called the Warriors. And I would hear stories about these guys. And my friends where I grew up were named like Tom, Mark, Andrew, Dennis. My father's story, his friends were Hoo-Ha, Inky, Gutter Rat, (laughs) Iron Lung. Much more interesting than my friends. And they had a clubhouse underneath somebody's house that had a big a warrior painted on the floor with glow-in-the-dark letters. They had jackets. They, and he, even when he was much older, a bunch of these guys ended up living around each other in Florida, and they had jackets that said aging warriors. So there's not many of those guys left, but they were a unique breed, and they got into a lot of funny things.
1: And a couple things that, that got my attention, the um, pretending to be a campaign manager
2: at an Election huh. Day event. What was that all about? Well, he was having dinner with Larry King uh, during the Democratic Convention in New York. And Larry said he was going to the Democratic Convention at, the Ma- at Madison Square Garden. And my father said, okay, I'll meet you there. And he said, you can't get in. I don't have a pass for you. And it's crazy security. It was one of Bill Clinton's conventions, I think. And my father said, I'll see you there. And then, you know, Larry figured he wasn't going to see him. And Larry turns up and my father's sitting next to him on stage. And... <laughs> You know, he would do stuff like that all the time. And I, I was older now. This is when I'm in my 20s. And um, I knew a reporter who had seen it happen, who told me what happened, which is my father just walked up to, like, one of the head security guys and started with a notepad and started asking him, well, what when what are your hours? and How many people are on the shift? Where's the command post? And he just acted like he was the, everybody's boss. And the guy very obediently answered all these questions. My father congratulated him for doing a great job, say it had been noticed, would be in the report, and walked right in. And that was the equivalent of turning himself into a sign.
6: <laughs>
2: Bathrooms out of order. You know, the guy saw him and just believed that and the guy ended up feeling good about the whole thing because he'd just been complimented and told he'd done a great job. So that was like my father's way. One of my father's hobbies was whenever I was bored, I would say, you can't get in there. They, they, there's, there's no way you can get in It It's sold out. And he would, "Yo, I can't get in. He would say, I can't get in? I say you can't get in. There's like people been waiting for tickets for three weeks. You can't get in. He's like, let's correct that. You can't get in.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, the the, and then other, get in. the other story that that is just really perplexing is the um, the way he was uh, uh, coaching the the basketball team to play really slow. To throw off the other team
2: this is why they developed the 21st second shot clock by the way my father's sport as a kid was basketball he was a an okay you know pretty good not great basketball player but he was very good observer of the game and kind of a natural coach and I think that if he lived in a different time he would have been a professional basketball coach but he didn't do that because he couldn't make any money doing that and he, he had a family but he was in the military and he played in the basketball league in the military and he took a very mediocre team and he got into the championship and ultimately got all the way to the word of this general who made him the head of ultimately a team in this all European league that had pros that had been drafted and college standouts. A lot of guys that would end up in the NBA, he coached and he started out with kind of not a great team and he, his, one of his whole things is how do you beat a great team with an okay team and it can be done. And in that case, his whole thing is about basically confusing people and throwing people off and surprising them. And with that, he sort of used their, their strength into their weakness. This goes back to, you know, turning weakness into a strength, which is he had his team play very slow because he knew that the other team was anxious to get the ball and run, and he wouldn't let them run. And it frustrated them so much that they acted out, they committed fouls, they made mistakes, and he had this very mediocre team beat this very great team, and then they <laughs> moved him up to a better team for the, the top league, and that was a very good team, and he had that team play very fast. You know, so the whole thing was a big you zag, you know, and just confounding. And you see it in the NBA. I forgot the name. There's a famous coach at Piston that used to coach uh, at the Princeton used to coach that same way and get these Ivy League teams competing in the NCAA tournament every year. So it's all about sort of using the other side's expectations against it and using their strength to your benefit. And the the speed in basketball, which is such an advantage, it could also be exploited to hurt the, the possessors of it, if that makes sense. But if given the choice, you'd always prefer a fast team, but sometimes you don't have the fast team. You make do with what you got.
1: Now that this book is out, Rich, what's um what's next for you?
2: Actually I've been working on something about basketball. It's funny that you asked. About uh basketball I'm from Chicago, so sort of the high school basketball scene in Chicago in the in the seventies and eighties where I was growing up has was amazing. You know, Isaiah Thomas was playing then in a Catholic school and and all these there were these great high schools, a lot of players who ended up going to play at the Paul, who had a great team with a great coach when I was a kid. So I've sort of been, I don't know what I'm going to do with it for sure, but I'm deeply involved in reliving that. Because that was with my father. Because he would take me to all those games and explain to me, because one of his whole things, he says about negotiation, time, information, power, right? And those are the three things you need to be successful. And the information was, we'd go to these games and he would explain, look why this player only goes to his right you know, or this guy can't, doesn't ever pass it to his left. He can't see well out of the left side of his face, you know? So, and that was something that you would just gather information that you could use. And that made me very interested in basketball as a place where you saw all these different kinds of human characteristics and abilities come into play. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Long answer, but that's it.
1: <laughs> I, I was talking to a guy who had, uh... Written a biography about uh, Alfred Hitchcock and, and well, uh, the book was about Alfred Hitchcock and the censors. And he said Alfred Hitchcock would find out that this this one censor couldn't see out of one of his eyes. So they'd yeah. go to a screening and he would sit on his good eye side and then distract him. When they'd get to a scene yeah. he didn't want him to see.
2: <laughs> That's exactly the kind of thing my father would do. Also, another thing I think of about Alfred Hitchcock is, in like a lot of his best movies, he had the MacGuffin, you know? That's like the thing that everybody was chasing. The MacGuffin's like, you know, the stolen briefcase. Like in Pulp Fiction, they have the briefcase full of like uranium right, or something. Right, right. So, but the MacGuffin doesn't really in itself matter. It's just an occasion for all the action to unfold. And that's what my father would say, which is a lot of times you're chasing something. Realize that it's a MacGuffin, that it's the chase that's the point of it, the experience.
1: Is there any aspect of life that doesn't involve negotiation to some degree?
2: Well, my father would say no. (laughs) <laughs> he opens. His, he, he opens his book by saying the whole world's a giant negotiating table. He opens the book with a story about me having a fit in a restaurant because they didn't want to be there, and explains that that's a kind of negotiation, and that kids are natural negotiators. Now, his definition of negotiating is very, very broad, but when explaining, you know, the basis of negotiation, he starts with Abraham negotiating with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, and how Abraham though he's got a huge power differential, he uses his weakness to appeal to God's strength to get God to agree that if he can find ten good people, he won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, he doesn't find ten good people, but the point is that Abraham is able to negotiate with God, um, even though, you know, he has no leverage at all. So he would say, ultimately, you know, human relationships, family, those are the things that matter, we don't associate them with negotiation because we think negotiation is about money and business. But he would say it's not our view of family that's wrong. It's our view of negotiation. That negotiation is just the way you navigate around the world. And if you can master it, you can have a better life.
1: Well, and, and most of us tend to uh, define negotiation as uh, a win, lose game.
2: Right. And he would say if it's win, lose, ultimately in the end, it will be lose, lose because, for, for, for it to be successful in the long run, everybody's got to feel like they've got a stake in the game. And if not, they're going to try to destroy the game. So it's got to be win-win for everybody.
1: Well, this is, uh, this is great. The book is The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator, written by uh, New York Times uh, bestseller, best-selling author and magazine writer uh and and herbie cohen's son rich cohen who is uh <coughs> my guest this morning on the radio show excuse me um rich we're almost out of time and i have really enjoyed this conversation with you and i thank you for sharing uh, some of the stories about you and your dad and uh with with me and the listeners this morning and of course in the book um but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do.
2: I have a website that's just called AuthorRichCohen.com. It's got all my, a, lot, a bunch of my articles. I write a lot of articles and a, and a bunch of my books on there. So if you go on there, and you can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything else local bookstores, whatever, through that website.
1: Well, Rich, thanks so much. It was a pleasure and an honor meeting you and getting a chance to talk with you a little bit this morning.
2: Thank you so much. Great to, great to meet you. Take care. Okay.
1: Once again, uh, Rich Cohen, he is the author of The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, who... Um, was uh, dubbed by Playboy magazine the world's greatest negotiator and uh, we're going to take a uh, break here in a moment and um, we just have uh, oh about 20 minutes or so until we get to armchair politics Mark Everson a uh, uh, former high-ranking government official from two uh, presidential administrations will be joining our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. That's coming up at the top of the hour. Two hours of commentary and analysis about uh, local, state, and national headlines from the worlds of politics and current events in the meantime we're going to take a short break let our broadcast partners at wfov our voices radio 92.1 lp fm flint squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when uh, we go to break if you're streaming us at tomsumnerprogram.com we have some messages as well so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse lots more straight ahead
7: Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone.
2: This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move
1: around. It's a- visit with Michelle's mom the hug her and see her on her birthday.
7: You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage.
2: In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's
7: important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when
2: it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part.
7: This is our shot. Now it's up to you.
1: (laughs) Yo, speaking.
5: Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring
1: again.
3: So soon. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: There's a fellow by the name of Noah, built an ark. Everybody knows he built an ark. He said, what did Noah do? He said, well, he built an ark, but very few people know about the conversation that went on between the Lord and Noah. You see, Noah was in his rec room sawing away. He was making a few things for the home there. He's a good carpenter. Vuba, 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 Vuba Noah Somebody call? Vuba, Vuba, Vuba Noah Who is that? It's the Lord, Noah (laughs) Right Where are you? What do you want? I've been good. I want you to build an ark. Right. What's an ark? Get some wood, build it 300 cubits by 80 cubits by 40 cubits. Right. What's a cubit? Let's see, a cubit. I used to know what a cubit was. Uh. Well, don't worry about that, Noah. When you get that done, go out into the world, collect all of the animals in the world by twos, male and female, and put them into the ark. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who is this really? What's going on? How come you want me to do all these weird things? I'm going to destroy the world. Right. Am I on candid camera? How are you gonna do it? Wanna make it rain for a thousand days and drown them right out? Right. Listen, do this, you'll save water. Let it rain for 40 days and forty nights and wait for the sewers to back up.
6: Right.
7: effect of an arc on the average neighbor. Now, here's a guy going to work seven o'clock in the morning, Noah's next door neighbor, and he sees the arc. Hey, yo up there. What do you want? What is this? It's an arc. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You want to get it out of my driveway? I gotta get to work. Listen, what's this thing for, anyway? I can't tell you. Ha 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 ha. Well, I mean, can't you give me a little hint? You want a hint? Yes, please. How long can you tread water? Of course, Noah had had a heck of a job, really. He he had to go out and collect all of the animals in the world by twos. Two mosquitoes, male or female. And uh, he had to keep telling the rabbits, only two, only two, only two. We find Noah pulling up the last two animals, two hippos, and he's really in a hurry to get them up because he's afraid that the Lord's going to call him and ask him to do something else, and his nerves are shot. This is one heck of a job for a man 600 years old. (laughs) So we find him pulling up the last two hippos, and of course the Lord does call him there. Come on, fat hippos, hurry up. Come on, will you please? Noah. What? (laughs) What do you want? gotta take one of those hippos out and bring in another one. What for? Cause you got two males down there and you need to bring in a female. I'm not bringing nothing in. You change one of them. <laughs> Come on, you know I don't work like that. Yeah, well, I'm sick and tired of this. I've had enough of this stuff. I've been working all day, working all, day, working all day. for days and days, I'm sick and tired of this. Noah? Yeah? How long can you tread water? <laughs> Yeah, well, I got news for you. I'm sick and tired of this whole mess I've done, The whole neighborhood's out there laughing at me. You're all having a grand time at good old Lord there. I went out and got my best friend, Larry. I said, Larry, listen, I've been talking with the Lord. Larry said, oh, really? I said, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> Lord, Larry, Larry, Lord. You walked up there laughing. I hear them all up there laughing at me. You know I'm the only guy in this neighborhood with an art People are around there laughing, picket signs, walking up and down. I'm sick and tired of this stuff here. People are walking around there. How you doing, Tarzan? How's everything out there? Sick so tired of this mess here. You're supposed to know all and see all. You let me go out there and bring in a pregnant elephant. You give me no manual for delivery and everything. Never told me the thing was pregnant. There's good old Noah waiting underneath the elephant there. Broom, right on top of the elephant. Sick so and tired of this mess here. Had enough of all this stuff for you running around and you're supposed to know all and see all. Like I said before, you let me go out there and do all this stuff here. You never even looked in the bottom of that ark. Have you looked down there? No. Who's gonna clean up that mess down there? That's like me. I'll tell you that. I've had enough of this. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm letting all these animals out. And then I'm going to burn down this ark. And I'm going to Florida somewhere because you haven't done nothing. I'm sick and tired of all this mud You're pulling around and you haven't done nothing. Then, and you got it raining. It's not a shower, is it? Okay, Lord, me and you, right? Because I knew it. all the time everything was Program, don't you know? Come on, come on, get out of here.